0: All right, everyone. Time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to go off in a few different directions on the podcast recently. And uh, very, very honored and happy to be joined by now someone who is just a monster on Twitter. Aaron RuPart joins me right now. His uh, expertise is politics and media. But a little, you know, that's sort of my interest, Aaron. Obviously, my expertise is tennis and sports overall, but it sounds like you have a little interest, as I do in politics, in tennis and in sports in general. So thank you for uh, agreeing to come on. It's great to have you.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure to chat with you. Um, Yeah, I actually played tennis when I was in high school. I was the captain of the uh, high school team in Forest Lake, Minnesota, which is where I grew up. And uh, so it was really um, on Sunday morning as I was watching the, the Sunday news shows, which I usually do and tweet out video clips of the highlights, um, you know, catching the very end of Rafa's win uh, and what an amazing champion he is. And, you know, it makes me feel really good as a 38 year old to see, uh, you know, a doll who's, who's 35 and Petter is obviously out, but he's even older. I mean, I still feel like these guys are part of my generation and so, uh, that's always really cool to see those guys winning and and he's just a phenomenal champion anyway. So, uh, it was really cool to uh, you know stay up late a few of the nights and catch some of the, the Australian Open recently.
0: Yeah, the Australian Open is uh, was amazing. And uh, just as you get a lot of flack on Twitter from uh, particularly those on the right of the political spectrum, uh, I got a tremendous amount of flack from tennis fans and Nadal fans because, Aaron, I said you probably weren't up at this point, but it was early in the third set. Uh, Nadal was down two sets to love, was down 2-3, love 40 on his serve. And at one point, I said, "Well, this is all but over," and and I actually believed it was all but over, watching what I was seeing in front of me. So it was pretty amazing that uh, three hours later, Nadal was there. He was at five all in the fifth set and found the energy and the resilience because I thought physically he was done midway through that third set. So uh, he just kept coming back. Yeah, well,
1: it must have been different. It must have been different for you guys not traveling. Um, I'm so used to you being there to to broadcast the majors. So, um, you know, obviously just, just watching it, you guys didn't really miss a beat, but I'm sure that was a little bit of a different experience not actually, you know, being at the courts yourself.
0: Unfortunately, Aaron, we've gotten somewhat used to that over the last two years with the pandemic. Yeah. Last year uh, was obvious because uh, the vaccine wasn't available. So Australia was, you know, basically in a total lockdown. So we did it last year. This year, I think we could have gone with uh, the way COVID uh, you know was more under control obviously there was the whole saga with Novak Djokovic i'd like to hear your thoughts on that issue cuz that kept me busy on cnn and other outlets for quite some time before the tournament started but this year i think espn mm-hmm. just made the decision it was just easier on all levels to keep us in Connecticut. And in fact, I was back at our tennis academy yesterday, Monday, the day after uh, the day, the day after the final happened. And people were looking at me like, weren't you just in Australia? How'd you get back so soon? I said, no, instead (laughs) of a 30 hour trip, it was an hour and 20 minute drive, you know, back from uh, Bristol, Connecticut, back to where I live in Westchester.
1: Yeah. And and I did see your tweet last night that you posted from the court. And like you said, I, I was not awake. Uh, when the match kind of turned in that third set. But um, I gathered from your tweet that, you know, you had said something um, to the effect of, you know, Nadal Nidal being done.
0: <laughs> uh, right, and right,
1: I know that you said that you'll never, you'll never doubt him again, which seems wise at this point.
0: Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, reading, uh, listening to a couple of your interviews that you've done on other podcasts, and uh, doing my homework on you. I knew you were from Minnesota. I knew you were into tennis, but I didn't know you played on your high school team. So that's cool. I want to, I want to break down of your game uh, at some point during this uh, podcast. But the other thing that struck me uh, as I was going through my timeline and you know people ripping me for not supporting the. Nadal- now, how could you not know he was going to come back? And then of course there, are the Djokovic fans ripping me for uh, criticizing him, but you said something in one of your interviews, or maybe it was something uh, uh, in, in an article written about you. I think it might've been the one back in Minnesota where you worked initially before you moved to DC, where you talked about, you kind of take it with a grain of salt, the people, cause you must get attacked. I mean, nonstop, particularly as you sort of take the, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're more left leaning, obviously on your Twitter mm-hmm. account. So you, how do you handle all that, and you know, how do you how, how do you take that? What comes your way? Because it must be, I'm guessing it must be pretty um, critical. Would be maybe a word a uh, too mild of a yeah. word. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, well, especially that was the case during like the 2020 campaign from a lot of Trump fans. You know, I was obviously highly critical of Trump um, and covered him going all the way back to the 2016 Republican primary. So I kind of followed his whole rise. And presidency. And you know, I think that was part of the thing that um, helped me build such a big audience was just the fact that at a time when a lot of mainstream outlets were covering Trump in a way that, you know, didn't kind of um, characterize the stakes of what was going on clearly, you know, I was willing to kind of say when he was lying and, um, you know, when he was using racial dog whistles and things like that. And so I think, you know, people kind of appreciated that I was willing to call it as I saw it in that way. And so when you do that, obviously it's kind of a polarizing thing where, you know, you're going to have a lot of people who agree with you and really appreciate your work. But then if you're a fan of, uh, you know, if you're a Trump fan, you're not going to appreciate what I'm up to. So I I try not to take it overly personally, because I think it just kind of comes with the territory. And the vast majority of the feedback I get is positive, both for the things that I write and for the things that I tweet. So um, sometimes it can be, you know, Kind of difficult um, when people get too personal, or you know, I had an incident a couple of years ago where someone looked up my property records and posted them online, um, you know, including like my parents' address and stuff like that. And and that stuff happens when you're a journalist um, with a large profile. Um, but I do kind of view it as just sort of coming with the territory. And uh, but you're right. I mean, even you know, tennis these days now with the Djokovic situation uh, kind of became a political hot button as well. So you know, we live in such polarized times that I think whenever you kind of weigh in on current events, um, you know, you're going to have your the people who agree with you and the people who disagree. And, and these days, um, those disagreements are so sharp that um, things can get really personal really quickly. But I think, you know, just being a public figure um, you
0: know, part of that just comes with the territory, right? It's, and by the way, it's AT Rupar. For those of you who don't, uh, know about Aaron's work on Twitter, he's got, uh, well over 700,000 followers. And, uh, you also do, uh, an article, uh, subscription service, I guess what well, you describe to me, what is a newsletter, I guess on Substack. So that's what you, be, that's what you do in your day job, I guess these days, right? That's right. Yep.
1: I uh, have a newsletter called Public Notice on Substack. Um, So I've gone independent. I was at Box for three years and I'm doing the same sort of work I did there, um, covering politics and media. And the vast majority of the stuff that I publish is free. So if people are interested to read kind of my long form thoughts, um, you know, fleshing out stories in a longer form than I do obviously on Twitter. Uh, please check out my newsletter. You can find it at com or just Google my name and Substack, or just follow me on Twitter because I, I post a lot of my stuff on there too.
0: And and, and when I do, uh, when I did search your name, uh, the the things that come up right away, of so course, all your videos. So you obviously sort of caught on to that. Uh, I guess, as you said, when you were following the, uh, uh, election before, when Trump became president, uh, and so how did that all start? Because obviously, you, you know, it's, it's, it, it that sort of taken on a life of its own, the way you were able to get these videos, get them up quickly, sort of follow the news and be on top of it. Maybe even before a lot of the mainstream media were able to do it. How did that come to pass?
1: Yeah, it's really kind of a funny story because I really stumbled into that. Um, I had been working for about two years as a political reporter based out of D.C., uh, just covering politics, you know, writing articles, things like that. And uh, we had a training at work on this software called SnapStream, which has become very popular. Um, you know, people probably don't know about it broadly, but you know, like CNN uses it, um, a lot of big outlets use it. And basically, what it does is it records. Um, cable TV, in a way where you can search transcripts and post video clips very easily. And so I had this training uh, because it was something that we bought as a newsroom when I was working at this place called Think Progress, which actually no longer exists, but was part of the Center for American Progress. And um, after I had the training, I just happened to have Fox News on one night. This was in the fall of 2017. And John Kelly, who was at that time the White House chief of staff, was on Fox doing an interview where he was kind of defending some of the remarks that Trump had made around that same time on the Confederacy and basically saying that these Confederate monuments in southern cities should be preserved. And, you know, he was kind of making arguments um, toward that end. And so, you know, it was, I thought, kind of uh, a pretty fringe argument that he was making and, you know, kind of piqued my interest. And so I just happened to clip a little segment of it and post it on Twitter. And, um, you know, within a few hours, it was by far the most viral thing I had ever posted. It got like a couple thousand retweets. And so it really kind of opened my eyes, you know, almost literally overnight <clears throat> to the fact that there was such a, you know, a large appetite for people to consume uh, political video clips of highlights, you know, whether it was press briefings or hearings, uh, debates, all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, just from that one clip kind of resonating, you know, I I started to incorporate that more into just my daily workflow, you know, making sure I was keeping an eye on what was going on in cable news and on C-SPAN, places like that. And it just grew and grew and grew. So um, obviously, there was a huge, huge appetite for that stuff during the Trump years. Now that we're in a little bit more of a normal political environment, you know, where every speech that the president does, um, you know, there aren't all of these, and they're more normal, I guess, is, is how I would put it. They're, you know, traditional political speeches. It doesn't resonate you know, quite in the same way that it did during the Trump years, which is probably in most respects a blessing, but I really kind of just fell into it, and um, you know, it really helped make my career because it helped me develop the audience that I, that I have, and that made it possible for me to go solo
0: well you 're obviously doing amazing, so well done on that. Let me ask you about sort of the, one of the one of the more recent issues that 's out there, which is this whole Spotify deal uh, with joe Rogan but I, 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 the connection that it has to something you 've already said on this podcast, which is sort of being you as an independent being ahead of the curve uh, when it when it came to you know getting stuff out quickly. but then this other argument that I hear Joe Rogan and others making, which is, listen, I'm just out here doing my own thing. I'm doing my own podcast. I'm letting you know, different people come on and voice their opinions. So the way this has uh, transpired over the last week, what's your take on the whole Spotify, you know, the podcast situation, and, and, and how that relates, if it, if it does at all, to the mainstream media and what they put out?
1: Yeah. And, you know, people who do follow me on Twitter maybe noticed over the weekend um, I canceled my Spotify, which actually was a very tough choice for me because I've been a very heavy user of Spotify and I really think that it's a great product. But, you know, the problem with the Joe Rogan thing is not just the fact that he's on Spotify. I mean, you know, if, if his podcast was on Spotify and they weren't promoting it, um, that would be one thing. But the problem is that Spotify has invested $100 million to basically be Rogan's publisher because. Here's podcast is exclusively available on Spotify. You can't find it elsewhere. And, you know, in this context that we're in now with this pandemic where, you know, people being misinformed about public health not only puts themselves in danger, but puts other people in danger directly and then also creates conditions where the virus can keep mutating, which, you know, encourages the rise of additional variants and kind of prolongs the pandemic. You know, it, it's not like, you know, um expressing misinformation about some other topic that doesn't have those consequences for other people. And so to me, that's why this is especially concerning. Um, You know, when I posted my tweet announcing that I had canceled my Spotify, I had a lot of people replying with, well, you know, if you use Apple music or Apple podcasts, they have Steve Bannon on there and he's just as bad. And you know, that is true. But the difference again, is that Apple is not doing business with Steve Bannon. They're not promoting him. They're not investing in him. And so to me, that's where the situation with uh, Spotify kind of crosses a line. Um, You know, certainly we live in a country that has free speech protections. And so, you know, if Joe Rogan wants to have his podcast with uh, COVID misinformation and quack doctors on there, he's certainly free to do that. But, you know, we as consumers are also free to make choices with our money as well. And so, um, you know, again, I I really think that Spotify is a good product. But, you know, I think they, they made this investment in Rogan probably at a time where they weren't foreseeing that, um, you know, he would become such a hot button with COVID, but that's the environment that we live in now. And if you look at the guests that he's had recently, I mean, it's, you know, it's COVID quack after COVID quack on there. And, uh, that stuff really does have consequences that kind of go beyond, you know, just misin- misinforming people because it has dangers directly for others and indirectly in this pandemic context that we're in. So, um, to me, I think that, you know, it's just up to people to make their own choices on this, um, Spotify's stock obviously had a huge fall last week as, you know, Neil Young announced that he was pulling his music from there and Tony Mitchell, but it seems like it's kind of bounced back now. And Rogan, you know, yesterday released a video where he, he basically pledged that he's going to try and do a little bit better and do more research. Um, I kind of have my doubts about that, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those situations where we as consumers, you know, we don't have a ton of power, but one aspect where we do have power is just with our purchasing decisions. And so I thought, You know, it's important in this case to kind of put my money where my mouth is and and explore other options.
0: Interesting because I'll tell you, the, the one good thing that came out of it for me, uh, Aaron, as I was sitting up there in uh, Bristol, Connecticut, the home of ESPN, trying to sleep at the weirdest hours since we were on, you know, the middle of the night, particularly those last four days of the tournament covering the the matches. Uh, I, I it it forced me or it encouraged me to go back and I watched these great old videos of Joni Mitchell and uh, Neil Young. In fact, I, I tweeted one of Neil Young's songs, uh, one of his performances from YouTube, which was uh, the first time or one of the first times he ever performed Heart of Gold live uh, anyway. And he, he mm-hmm. it was great. He introduced it saying this is a new song and maybe you guys want, you know, because artists always, they get a little nervous when they're doing new songs because the fans don't know them. So they don't respond in the same way. So I was pretty cool to see that. Um, but when it, when it comes to that misinformation and, it, and it's been a who's who on Joe Rogan's show, uh, as you noted uh, recently, when it comes to the pandemic, why do so many people believe it? I mean, I have a lot of friends that are highly educated yeah. people that a hundred percent believe that, you know, go down the list of things. It was created by, you know, the Chinese. Fauci's being paid off by the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, da- around and around we go. And and they a hundred percent believe that. How And you've covered this because you covered, yeah. obviously, Trump for so long. Wh- wh- how, why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think.
1: The appeal of conspiracy theories in part is the sense that you have access to kind of secret information that makes you somewhat smarter than other people, you know, where you kind of have this secret access into what's really going on and everybody else is fooled and so it kind of makes you feel good. You know, I think with a pandemic like this, you know, there's also the aspect where if you are young and relatively healthy, I think, you know, it'd be easier to kind of buy into the idea that... Um, that this is a hoax or that it's being overhyped because you wouldn't feel personally at risk, or, you know, if you did get COVID, you probably would end up being just fine. I mean, I don't know if you saw the story just yesterday where um, there was this police officer in Washington state, and maybe you remember this because it was kind of a news story last October. Um, he quit his job um, over a vaccine mandate in Washington state. And when he locked off on his last shift over the, intercom, the police intercom or the, you know, the radio system, he told the governor to kiss his ass.
0: Right. He was, and 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 yeah, he was featured on the Laura Ingram show and others on Fox, right?
1: Yes. Yes. And so Fox kind of turned him into, you know, this hero of the moment. And then, you know, tragically he passed away last Friday. And of course, you know, they haven't um, updated their viewers about the fact that, you know, this guy who they had featured across multiple shows just a few months ago has passed away. Um, but, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of say that stuff like he did, you know, when you're not anticipating getting sick. And so, you know, sometimes it kind of takes that, as, 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 the, as, the, as is the case with a lot of conservative thinking. I mean, you know, it kind of seems reasonable in the abstract. And then when you are personally affected by something, it can kind of change the way that you look at things. And I think some of that is going on with COVID uh, very broadly. But, you know, I think just the appeal of, of some of this misinformation, again, is just that sense that you know, that, you know, something that other people don't, or you, everybody else is kind of a sheep and you're a a free thinker. Um, and so, you know, I think that's kind of the appeal of conspiracy theories very broadly. And, um, you know, in that, in that respect, I think it kind of makes for compelling radio or a compelling Mm. podcast. And, you know, there is the fact that Rogan, I mean, he has millions and millions of, of listeners. I mean, I think it was like each, each episode he puts up on Spotify gets like 2 million, huge, uh, yeah. you know, 2 million listens or you, know, you can watch it. It's a video podcast, but you know, so th- there's a very, very broad appeal to this stuff. And, you know, again, um, it's one thing to be kind of a contrarian when you're talking about, you know, UFC or even, even when you're talking about kind of politics, you know, but once it gets into the realm of public health, because it does have these consequences for other people, I think it's kind of a different ball game. And so, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's one thing to believe in conspiracy theories about like nine eleven, you know, and the whole, and, and that's bad that too. But you know, this idea that jet uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, that sort of thing, um, you know, that makes you kind of sound like a crazy person. But it doesn't necessarily affect others. Uh, with public health, it's kind of a different deal. But you know, again, I just think it's that sense that you know something other people don't.
0: Now, you spent a lot of time, obviously, covering uh, the the presidency of Trump and covering Fox News, as you were doing. And do you think that um, the, the the hosts, you know, the the prime time hosts that you know obviously have huge audiences, do you think they they honestly because it's it, it's hard for me, like when I. I try to look at both sides. Right. I mean, I lean left too. I'm a Democrat and that's just, you know, whatever. But I mean, I, I, I try to listen and I try to figure out, okay, do they honestly believe this stuff? Now you, you follow this way more closely than I do. So what is, what is your take on the, you know, why, why haven't they reported on this police officer that passed away?
1: Well, I think you know, there's evidence very recently that I wrote about my newsletter that these hosts don't believe this stuff. And, and the specific example was the text messages that some of them sent to Mark Meadows, who at the time was the White House chief of staff on January 6th and the days after, where they were texting Mark Meadows. This was both Hannity um, and uh, Hannity for sure was involved um, and, and more Ingram's texts were involved too. But Hannity was the one where it was very clear that he was texting Mark Meadows and saying, "Hey." Trump has to get out there and tell these people to stop. Um, You know, this is a disaster. People are going to die. And then he went on the air that night and tried to blame Antifa, um, you know, for the rioting when privately he very clearly thought that Trump was to blame and was responsible and had the power to stop it. And So I wrote about that because it was such a clear example of the disconnect between the stuff that these people say on air and what they're saying privately um, so that, you know, that's an example that's a little bit different than the COVID stuff. But, you know, I, I do think that if Fox News was a responsible news organization, uh, this guy, his name is LeMay, the, the cop who died, uh, who was a former Washington State uh, trooper. You know, If you're a responsible news organization, you would update your viewers that, hey, you know, tragically, this guy passed away from COVID um, just months after he was kind of a national story because of his anti-mandate stance. But they don't do that. And, you know, I wrote about this even a little bit today because. Just on Sunday, you probably saw this, Patrick. The statement that Trump released, basically saying that he thought Pence should have tried right. to overturn the election on January 6th. and you know it's a, that's a major story. Where it's this guy who was the presumptive 2024 frontrunner, the former president, you know, basically coming out and endorsing overthrowing a free and fair election, and Fox completely ignored that yesterday. They didn't bring it up a single time. So. You know, I think the correct correct way to think about Fox News is as a propaganda outlet and not a news outlet. And again, that story with the text messages that have come out because of the investigation that the January 6th committee is doing, I think is maybe the clearest evidence that we have of how these people say things on air that they clearly don't buy into privately.
0: It's amazing that that people can do that. I just find that amazing that they could go on and, I guess, do it for their career or Whatever the reason is, just mind-boggling to me. Uh, is Trump going to run again?
1: I think it's very, very likely that he will. Um, you know, I, even, I tweeted today. He, he sends out these kind of insane fundraising emails that are um, almost unintentionally hilarious because he kind of addresses people as like friend. I see that you haven't donated today. Like, oh, I get, get those too. No, I'm really on,
0: classic. I'm on that list too. I get them all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Classic. And, and those yeah. are the types of things. Those are the types of things that he would not be able to do if he officially announced. Um, he has more freedom to fundraise in kind of a shameless manner um, when he's not an official candidate. And so I think that's the reason that he hasn't officially announced at this point. But it seems, you know, when, when you watch his speeches or watch his interviews these days and when he's asked, he basically all but confirms that he's going to run again. And that's kind of a scary thing because I think, um, you know, if the election was to happen tomorrow between Biden and Trump, uh, Trump would have a very good chance of winning and, you know, obviously things haven't gone totally according to Biden's plan over the last year with COVID being resurgent again and some of the, you know, the inflation pressures that a lot of consumers are feeling, um, you know, that kind of that that in a normal political context, those are very damaging things for an incumbent. And so, um, you know, I think he'll have a pretty good shot of winning, which, again, is scary when you consider like the statement that I mentioned earlier that he released on Sunday, where you know, he's pretty clearly going to run basically in opposition to democracy. And so that puts us kind of on the precipice of being, you know, one election away from kind of a dramatic reordering of the way that our society works, which I think, you know, for most people, uh, we value having free and fair elections and being able to have, you know, elected officials that we choose, that uh, don't choose their voters, so to speak. And so, yeah, I think it's pretty likely, you know, barring some sort of health situation, um, I certainly don't see any other Republican that would beat him in the primary. And so, I'm anticipating that,
0: uh, that he will in fact run again, you know, in 2024. Well, uh, um, uh, uh, CNN will probably be happy. I, and I'm a CNN contributor now. Cause I covered that uh, Novak Djokovic story. And uh, I'm now on sort of on a semi-regular basis. So, but uh, you know, the other part of it that to me, it's like, it's good. The, the, the reason I say CNN will be happy because it's good for ratings. You know, people like to watch people pay attention. I, I remember when Trump lost and I said to myself, Oh, I, like finally I can, I could take a break from watching the news. Cause I'd watched, the news, you know, every night, I'd be like, oh my God, what's it, what's, what's he going to say now? Can you believe this? And I'd flick over to Fox and say, okay, what are they saying about it? And I will go to MSNBC. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a political junkie in that way. So it's, it's, it's a bit scary. Okay. So I got to ask you this. Cause I, I'm, I'm getting up to the time that I promised you, uh, tell me about your tennis game. What's your, what's your, <laughs> what's your game. I mean, you I, know, pop forget politics. Uh, Let's get to the important yeah. things.
1: Sure. Well, I, I was I'm a right-handed player, and I was always kind of a big big forehand, you know, more of a baseline kind of grinder. uh, Never really had the serve volley game, you know. That, that no, that's all right. Nobody that, ha-
0: that nobody has that now. Nobody serves in volleys. No,
1: that's- and that, you know cuz in, in Minnesota as as you're probably aware on some level i mean it's not exactly a tennis hotbed um you know cuz you can't play outside for 8 months of the year well there, but there but um, there, there,
0: there, there are some there are some of the best indoor tennis facilities in the world in uh in Minneapolis and i actually played when i was at stanford oh, i played at stanford and yeah. there used to be a big tournament uh it uh, in it was called i think it was it was in the winter it was a big national tournament indoor i think it was a national indoors and i think it might even still be there but uh, amazing facilities there, so that's no excuse there. No? give me yeah. The, and they actually, yeah.
1: I was, very, I was very saddened because just a few years ago the University of Minnesota uh, dropped its tennis program. And um, I used to go to matches because you would see guys playing, you know, in the Big Ten who would go on to play at the U.S. Open. You know, usually as kind of like the the opening round fodder for a Federer or someone like that. But you know, it's kind of cool to see such a high level of tennis. Um, but you know, I haven't really played now in about 15 years, which is unfortunate. So I would be, um, kind of ashamed at this point to hit with you because I don't know how that would go. But, uh, no, I, I had a lot of fun. You know, like I said, I played, I played in high school and uh, made it up pretty close to the state tournament a couple times, but never, never got over the hump. Um, but you know, I still enjoy watching it and I still kind of watch it with that mentality of playing, you know, and kind of dissecting the, the holes in, in, uh, the players games who play at that high of a level. But, uh, yeah, I was a baseline grinder. You know, I was the type <laughs> of guy that was just trying to to kind of outlast uh, the competition. But here in Minnesota at the high school level, you know, was, was good enough to be first singles on my team. Right, but, that's pretty uh, good. You know, if if I was to play at a higher level, I I, I don't think it would. Uh, I don't think I would have a great showing
0: at. And listen, Aaron, it's all about whatever level you're at to play hard and compete hard, and that's why Rafael Nadal. Sure. I mean, he's obviously at the highest level, but why he we get so much. He gets so much love and respect because he had a great line in his press conference because, you know, when he lost his serve, he served for the match. He got nervous. He had two matches where he'd been up a break in the fifth in previous years, 2012 against Djokovic, 2017 against Federer, where he blew a lead in the fifth set. So he actually said to himself, oh, no, here we go again. I'm going to, you know, what if I lose again? And he said to himself, he said, I can lose or I can win. He said, but I'm not going to quit. Uh, and, you know, to, to me, yeah. that's, 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 that's a, a great lesson for any player at any level. But you remind me of talking about the Big Ten. I mean, there were some really good players that were around my age. Mal Washington, who uh, was about my age, mm-hmm. who played at Michigan. And then uh, Todd Martin, who played at Northwestern. In fact, they played in the mm-hmm. one of the great Wimbledon semifinals. So they weren't just – those guys were top ten players. The Big Ten oh, has yeah, had some yeah. strong players over the years.
1: Yeah, so I, I remember specifically going to see a match. I must have been maybe like a senior in high school. And this is part of the reason, you know, like with Federer, he, he, his first major tournament was when I was still in high school, you mm. know, which, which makes me feel kind of young now, which is great, because he's still playing. Or at least, you know, he didn't play at the Aussie, but I believe his intention is to come back later in the year. But there was uh, someone who played, he was on Illinois, who uh, was playing Minnesota. And um, this was a match like in the spring of that year. And then a few months later at the U.S. Open, he played against Federer.
0: Uh, it's probably, I mean, uh, I mean, might've been I mean, Kevin Anderson. I mean, he definitely played in- yeah, they had a, well, they had that- a few, few players at Illinois. There's Kevin Anderson, who's South African, who, who's reached a Wimbledon and a U.S. open final. And then there was a, uh, guy from Indiana named Rajiv Ram, who, uh, is a great doubles player now, but also was a very good singles player. So there's been a lot of good, good no. players. And Aaron, um, listen, you can come play with me any time uh, for you coming no. on my podcast Come to the McEnroe Tennis Academy in New York. We'd love to have you. Or when I get to D.C. in the spring or the summer, there's an event in in the summer in D.C., which is a great event. I was there last summer for that. Uh, And we got to get out there and hit a few balls.
1: I would love that. It's it's really an honor talking to you. Thanks for having me on. And I'll definitely keep you in mind next time I'm in New York.
0: All right. Keep up the great work. You're a great follow, very entertaining and also educating us on what's going on in the political and media world. So thank you very much, Aaron Rupar, here on Holding Court. My pleasure. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.